So how many of you have heard that phrase before? Beating swords into plowshares. I'd venture to say most of you. Can you move the slide one? There's even a famous statue in front of the UN, if you've ever visited, um, made in 1959 by, does anybody know Russian? Can Evgeny Vukovich, Vukovich, I don't, I'm sorry. I am, thank you, Vutovich. I apologize to any of our Russian um, members. Um, <laughs> this was sculpted by uh, the Soviet, this, this was a Soviet sculptor in 1959 um, as a way of... Uh, embodying what the work of the UN was supposed to do. The United Nations was supposed to be uh, the end of war, as it were, a, a coalition of the strongest powers in the world, and some magical alchemy of diplomacy and common free market trade and nuclear deterrence was going to make peace on Earth. We weren't going to need to make war anymore, and... Uh, that's, that's worked out great. We have not had a single war since 1959, and um, we have no weapons in the world and in the country, and everyone is doing great. But really, <laughs> has not worked out so well. Kind of uh, disappointing for many of us who are idealists. So my question to you today is this. When we read passages like this one, this vision of Isaiah, in which there will come a day in which people will come to the mountain of the Lord, this being um, Mount Zion, where the temple is located. They will come up to Jerusalem and they will receive great teaching. They will prosper. There will be no need for weapons anymore. We'll just be gardening all the time like hobbits. So we read passages like that littered throughout the scriptures. And what are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to read these scriptures? What's the point of them? Are these promises for a future world when uh, God swoops back in um, on some pale horse with a sword coming out of his mouth or something like that and fixes everything for us because we're so broken and we can't do it ourselves? Are these marching orders of peace that we are to enact and make real today? And if so, what do we do with the fact that all of our, uh, our attempts at world peace have failed? How do we keep believing after every atrocity? So basically, and this one's not a rhetorical question, who is going to realize the, the promises of the prophets? And how do we keep the faith in the meantime? You're a church of dreamers a church of doers. What do you think? How do you take these passages? <laughs> Lisa's asking the same question. Who is going to realize these promises of swords into plowshares and times of peace and prosperity? Is this only when Jesus returns, or is this marching orders for us today? Philosophically. <laughs> Philosophically. 
it's an epistemological question, or how do you know that you know? And that goes to the root of our being, which is being in Christ. So it's a it's that simple, really. If we're in Christ, we read these words, and He speaks to us and says, "Go out and make peace." Then that's what we're to do. If he speaks to us that we're to pray and believe the word and trust, then that's what we're to do. But it's an individual knowing that comes from him through the spirit truth. Mm. Okay. I, I'm, I'm a fan of any Sunday in which somebody casually throws around the word epistemological. So, <laughs> Anne? challenge from the military industrial complex to um, to look at budgets and how they're being spent and to uh, to do all that as well that it's not just a personal thing but it is a as Christians as the body of Christ in the world we need to be attentive to the social justice issues of war making and, and the casualties of all of Thanks. Nicole, last one. I think it 
the enormity that the world is. Um, and I, I think for myself, like, it leads me to feelings of hopelessness. Like, how can I, a 38-year-old American, have anything to do with what's happening on the other side of the ocean, let alone um, the town that I find myself in. But I, when I read the stories of people doing this, it is almost always grassroots, and it's almost always people just doing something different. Um, of taking small steps, like encouraging politicians, of um, creating sacred space out of places of violence, um, and of actively working together with other people. But I, I may not be able, I'm not going to save the world. I'm not going to do that. But if enough people do that in their own corners, that's at least more hope. So, so this idea is like a, the now and not yet. Like we can find peace and we make peace and work for peace now, but in totality won't be until later. Thanks. Well, I think that you all and we all are a bunch of circus elephants. Yes, a bunch of circus elephants. The African elephant is the largest land animal um, since the Pleistocene era. It averages 11 feet tall, 13,000 pounds, can walk through trees like it's no problem, can stomp the life out of a lion. Um, there is literally unstoppable. If a full-grown elephant wants to do something, there is no living creature that can stop it. So how is it that traveling circuses can get them to sit on buckets and dance around like clowns? Well, the answer is that you can't train an adult elephant. It's impossible. They are too strong. They are too big. They are too intelligent. They are too communal. The way that the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, back when they used to exist, the way that they used to do it um, was that they needed to take the baby elephant away from its mother at around 18 to 24 months. And in order to get them away from their mother, they'd have to chain the mother to a wall and then chain the baby to another elephant and have that elephant lead them away. One of the adult elephants that's already been broken. And then they would take that baby elephant away into isolation. And now female elephants will never leave their mothers in the wild until their mothers have died. Male elephants will stay with their mothers until they're in their 20s. In fact, elephants have been known to respond to the pre-recorded calls of their mothers decades after they've died. Elephants have funerals for their fallen comrades. The elephants are one of the only other animals that have tear ducts. They cry when they are distressed. So this is intentionally, physiologically, psychologically crushing to them. 
Then they have to take that baby elephant and they have to chain all four of its legs separately to a pole and have it physically stand up for up to 24, 23 hours a day for about six months in order to break its spirit. And once they've noticed that it's no longer trying to explore, that it no longer has any semblance of curiosity, that's when the actual training would begin, which would be another six to 12 months of chaining all four legs and forcing them into positions and abusing them along the way. And what's important about this kind of training is that they get hurt if they do the right thing and if they do the wrong thing. That there is no reward system involved. The whole point of this is to simply break their spirits. Because... If an elephant knew that an elephant was an elephant, then none of this would work. The only way to make a 13,000-pound elephant afraid of a 200-pound man, and it is almost always a man, is to crush them before they realize how powerful they are. And this process is called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. And I think that we all suffer from this to some extent, some of us much more than others, definitely some communities more than others. I remember when I was young and idealistic, and I was, uh, I think, a freshman or sophomore in college, I had left home, I had, I had started reading these really dangerous books about things like justice and plans for overthrowing powers and principalities and all of these things. I, I, I was reading about, about matters of economic unfairness and about racism. And I was learning about, about, about the way the world works and about dreaming about the ways that it could work if we all just loved each other a little bit more, right? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing. There's just too little love. It's all we need, right? All we need is love. And I was going to go out into the world and be an agent of that love and kindness and pour out on the world and the world would be made better for it. That way that somebody who is 19 years old thinks about the world. And I remember a particular moment where my friends and I were sitting in the lawn of Millennial Park in, uh, in, in Chicago, Millennium Park, though we were millennials, millennials in Millennium Park, um, just enjoying the day. And a, a man came up to us and he was real frazzled and he was real kind of worried and, and he talked fast and he told us this really awful sob story about getting mugged and about losing his wallet and all of his identification and how he needed to get onto a plane or a train or something like that to make it to his mother's funeral and he had been asking people all around Millennium Park and nobody would give him money because nobody believed him. And he said, this world of ours is so broken that, that everyone is so suspicious of everyone else and nobody will help their neighbor. And of course, as a 19-year-old dreamer, I thought, yes, of course I will. This is, God has put you in front of me for such a time as this and gave him everything I had except for my train ticket to get back to my uh, my dorm room and uh he thanked me profusely and blessed me and asked if he could pray with me and did this whole thing and walked away and i i felt so good and then the couple who was sit sitting near us came over to me and said hey 
uh, I just I just saw what happened. I didn't want to intrude. I didn't want to make a scene, but that guy was here yesterday with the same story. We fell for it too. He said, sorry, man. People are really rotten when it comes down to it. And nice people like us always get taken for granted. Nice people like us always get taken for granted. And I remember in that moment of innocence and naivete, this level of embarrassment, of, of hurt, kind of like the feeling the first time you get bit by an animal as a kid. And I could feel the roots of my eventual cynicism beginning to take hold. What I was in that moment was I was that young and trusting 18-month-old elephant being chained to the broken, cynical elephant in front of me as we walked away towards my future of learned helplessness. And every time I stepped out in that adolescent idealism, some older, jaded, former idealist would cut me down to size, remind me that people are just rotten anyway. People are rotten to the core. You're going to give and you're going to get taken advantage of. Trust me, it's happened to me. This is why I don't trust people anymore. <sighs> there is no hope for humanity, not on the grand scale of things, not until Jesus returns and does all the things that the Bible says Jesus is going to do when Jesus returns. There is no real hope. You cannot escape. And you will be hurt if you step out of line, so don't even bother. So over time, I learned how to be good enough so that people thought that I was a good person, but no more. Nothing too ambitious, nothing too hopeful, nothing too systemic. Only Jesus can fix the bigger problems of the world. The swords into plowshares is an eschatological reality, which is a fancy word for in the end times. We can't do it in our lifetimes. But here's the other thing about learned helplessness. Is that researchers at UPenn in the 1960s discovered that when puppies, and researchers are terrible to animals, aren't they? When puppies were punished, regardless of what they did, so it's not one of those situations where it's like, if you say the right thing, you don't get shocked. If you do the wrong thing, you get shocked. Not one of those situations. But if you get punished either way, future punishments didn't matter anymore. You couldn't train that dog as an adult. It just took it. It lost its ability to make sense of pain in the world. It lost its ability to learn, to come up with creative solutions, to respond to constructive punishment. Learned helplessness takes away our ability to learn from our setbacks. It paralyzes us in the face of pain, and it robs us of our creative problem-solving and dooms us to repeat the same stale tactics that the powerful are expecting from us. But the day of the Lord that Isaiah writes about is not the end of the world. Nobody in that time thought it was the end of the world. 
No rabbi writing later thought that Isaiah was writing about the end of the world. And the Messiah that Isaiah writes about in these passages is not God incarnate, but is human leaders. These words were meant to be made manifest in our time. And in the time of the readers, these visions of plowshares and swords were meant to inspire readers to take action right now to create the world that they dreamed of. And friends, those who profit from the uh, $2.1 trillion weapons market and the $4.6 trillion fossil fuel industry and the $8.6 trillion healthcare industry want you to think that you cannot make a difference. <laughs> because they know that if you ever realize even a fraction of how powerful you truly are, they would be in trouble. Because you, friends, are children of the living God who holds the secrets of the universe. The God who created all things by God's own imagination. You are heirs to that power, to that divinity. You are filled with the same spirit which rose Jesus from the dead and about whom Jesus said, you will do greater works than these. And if I were preaching to a different congregation at this point, I might list off a number of places where you can plug in to learn how you can make a bold difference in the world today. But I would imagine you can just turn to your left and to your right and ask your neighbor what they're already doing in this place and ask how it is that you can plug in with that power and with that uh, that knowledge that you have about who you truly are. So I want to give you two things today. I want to give you an exhortation and a warning. We'll start with the warning. Be careful not to let your cynicism lead a young dreamer astray. We've all been hurt We've all made ourselves vulnerable out in the world and then not received uh, anything good in return. We've all felt that been, been broken down by the world systems that would have us not recognize our true power. And then it can be tempting with, with uh, younger idealists to kind of break them down as well. Please avoid that. You don't, you don't realize how much power you have to them as well. And hurt people hurt people. And it is a tool of the oppressors to use those of us with good hearts to also continue this system of learned helplessness. But you can break that cycle for the next generation as well. And as you do, friends, I pray that you would go out with the confidence knowing that you are children of the living God and that the very energy, the power which created all existence flows through your veins as well. That you are not small and you are not helpless. You are mighty. And the, the, the quicker we realize how much power we truly have in this moment, in this day, the better our communities will be for it. So let us beat our swords into plowshares. Let us 
convert our single-use plastics into bird feeders, and may we ourselves be transformed into agents of change for Christ. Let us pray.